You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers podcast. Today is part three in our series on Richard Francis Burton. The only note for today is to check out explorerspodcast.com for maps and photos and links to stuff about Burton. Otherwise, that's it. Let's be off and running. Last time, we left Burton as he was heading back to India to rejoin his regiment. Once there, he would take the East India Company language exam to become a qualified Arabic translator. And you would think that Burton, after having actually survived a year undercover in Arabia, would be pretty set on that count, but we can't forget about the pettiness of other human beings. The man who gave Burton his exam did not like him and failed him. An Arabic scholar, George Badger, after looking at Burton's exam, called the decision ludicrous, saying that the committee knew only a fraction of what Burton knew. For Burton, it only confirmed that he had no desire to be part of army life. Even as he tried to do well, he was thwarted by small-minded men who didn't like Burton's attitudes and methods. Anyhow, Burton finished up his narrative of the Medina and Mecca journey, which would be published in two volumes in 1855 and 1856, and then write some poetry and toy with the idea of writing a history of Islam. And then he decided to take his future into his own hands. Some years earlier, the Royal Geographical Society and the East India Company had proposed an expedition to an area called Somaliland, which is in modern-day Somalia. The coastline of this region was mostly explored, but the interior was not. And this included the legendary city of Harar, known as the fourth holiest city in Islam after Mecca, Medina, and Jerusalem. Harar is spelled H-A-R-A-R if you want to look it up. No European had ever gone to the city and returned. Anyhow, the society's plans never really got off the ground, and that's when Burton tossed his hat into the ring to lead such an expedition. Word of Burton's exploits of his time in Arabia had reached the society, and they were impressed. And Burton found a champion in an influential new friend, James Lumsden, a senior member of the Bombay Council, who he had met on the ship coming to India. With Lumsden's support, the expedition approval was fast-tracked, and before you know it, Burton was back in the adventuring business. Burton's plans for the Somaliland expedition were ambitious. He would take a small team of British officers and explore the Somaliland region, including a visit to Harar in the interior. His team would then travel overland more than 1,000 miles to the south, or 1,600 kilometers, and cross from the continent to the island of Zanzibar in modern-day Tanzania. As I said, the prize here was Harar, the only interior city in the region. The city was, reportedly, rich as it was a major commercial center, linking trade routes throughout Ethiopia, the Horn of Africa, and the Arabian Peninsula. Slaves in ivory were a big part of this trade. 
Resting high in the Ethiopian mountains, Harar was also reputed to be a seat of Muslim learning. But amazingly, no European had ever entered the city. Missionaries, diplomats, and enterprising merchants had tried, but they had been turned back or had never returned. Thus, Harar was a city of mysteries. No one even knew the language the people spoke. Of the city, Burton would say, quote, A tradition exists that with the entrance of the first white Christian, Harar will fall. End quote. As noted, Burton would have a team for this expedition. This included Lieutenant William Stroyan of the Indian Navy, who Burton knew from survey work in Pakistan, as well as Lieutenant G.E. Hearn of the Bombay Infantry. Hearn was a skilled surveyor. The other man was a surgeon, J.E. Stocks. However, Stocks would die of a stroke before the expedition got underway. He would be replaced by Captain John Hanning Speak. Speak is going to be very important to our story and Burton's life for the next decade or so. Only 27 years old, Speak had been in the Army since he was 17. He had been on leave for the past five years exploring the Himalayas and Tibet. Speak was an interesting man. He was accomplished and decorated, having served with distinction in the Sikh Wars. He was brave, hardworking, and a perfectionist. He didn't drink or gamble or chase women. But he was also viewed as calculating and guarded, and a person who would never forget or forgive a slight or insult. Above all things, Speak was an avid hunter and collector of animals, flora, and fauna, and he had come to Africa to do those exact things, but he had been denied permission to go onto the continent by the British bosses in Aden. Thus, he was happy to join Burton's expedition. We will talk more about Speak later, but we will really get to know the man in our next episode. So, it was October 1st, 1854. Burton would arrive in Aden, in modern-day Yemen, about 150 miles across the Gulf of Aden from the coast of Africa. It would be the staging spot for Burton's expedition. The expedition, despite the approval of the Royal Geographical Society and the East India Company, would soon run into an obstacle named Colonel James Outram, the political resident in Aden. Outram was very opposed to the Somaliland expedition. One reason was his dislike of Burton, and the other was that he didn't want to stir up any trouble with the native peoples in the region. Burton would thus, again, be forced to scale back his plans to get the go-ahead for his expedition. He would have to break up his team. He would send Speak to a place called Wadi Nagal, where gold dust had rumored to have been found. Hearn and Stroyan would be dispatched to the area around the port of Berbera in modern-day Somalia. There they would explore, find out about caravan routes, the slave trade, and survey the region. They were also to engage with the local tribal leaders and set the stage for further interactions. The scaled-back nature of the expedition frustrated Burton. In his book on the Somaliland expedition, he would take a shot at the timidity of his bosses in Aden, saying, quote, The Anglo-Saxon spirit suffers, it has been observed, from the confinement with any but wooden walls, and the European degenerates rapidly, as do his bulldogs, his gamecocks, and other pugnacious animals, in the hot, enervating, and unhealthy climates of the East. End quote. No matter, Burton would take on the most dangerous part of the expedition, and the one that offered the most glory, and that was the journey to Harar. If Burton would accomplish that, the company would have a much better lay of the land if it chose to expand into the region. In Aden, Burton set out to learn the local languages from the few Somalis that he could find, as well as the customs of the people. Sidetrack here. While in Aden, Burton would spend some time talking in depth with a friend, Dr. John Steinhauser, who he had known since India. The two discussed at length, translating a collection of Middle Eastern folklore commonly known as the Arabian Nights, or 1001 Nights. Some of these stories were known in Europe, but they tended to be the tame stuff aimed at children, such as Ali Baba and the Forty Thieves. But Burton and Steinhauser wanted to include all the stories, which dealt with sex, horror, and other adult themes. Anyhow, we will talk more about Burton's translations of books such as the Arabian Nights in later episodes. Sidetrack done. 
For Burton's expedition to Harar, he would gather a team of native men in Aden. His main man would be Mohammed Mahoud, or Al-Hamal, a bull-necked police sergeant. Another policeman, Gulad, was also part of the team. Burton and the others called him Long Gulad because he was tall and immensely thin. The final team member was Abdi Abokar, who Burton nicknamed End of Time, an Arabic joke referring to the prophesied corruption of Muslims in the last days of the world. End of Time was a rogue who loved to smoke and have fun. Burton called him, quote, an admirable buffoon, end quote. He was also Burton's favorite companion. Burton would plan on traveling to Harar in his disguise as Haji Mirza Abdullah, the doctor-slash-holy-man-slash-merchant persona he perfected in India and Arabia. Burton would land at the town of Zela on the Somaliland coast on October 31st. The governor of the town, Haji Shar Marke, knew Burton and was friendly to the British. When Burton revealed his plan to go to Harar, he was told to abandon the idea. It would only mean his death. But that would not stop Burton. The governor would write letters to the village leaders he knew along the route to hopefully help with the journey inland. In Zela, Burton would wait for nearly a month as he tried to obtain horses, mules, and camels for the expedition. While he waited, Burton studied the people and their customs. He would note their weapons, including great 18-inch daggers, war clubs, and a variety of spears and javelins. Swords were rare. The city of Zela was not exactly a vacation spa. Burton reported the people were often harassed by bandits, with six to seven murders happening during his time there. Nomadic tribesmen watched the town, some of them with their hair dyed red. Others wore ostrich feathers, proof that they had killed another man. By the way, Burton found that the local people greatly respected physical strength, so he took to challenging everyone to any sort of contest, proving to all that he was the strongest guy in town. In some ways, it's a silly thing, a guy wanting to prove how strong he is. But for Burton, it was a way to demonstrate his prominence. A display of strength gained him an advantage, so he used that opportunity. By the end of November, Burton would finally be ready to depart. He had five camels and four mules. In addition to the three men from Aden, he had a pair of female cooks, a guide, and another servant. Burton would, again, be warned not to undertake the journey, but he was determined to give it a go. The small caravan would depart on November 27th, laden with tobacco, dates, beads, and other trinkets for trading. There was also food, including rice, dates, salt, butter, tea, sugar, and biscuits. Now, the location of Harar was known, and there were established routes to the ancient city. So it's not as if Burton had to cut a trail or find his way through thick jungles to reach the city. But don't get me wrong, there were obstacles ahead. This included mountains, deserts, and natives, the latter of whom were unpredictable. Burton hoped that his disguise as a merchant and holy man would provide him with some protection. The expedition's guide was a man named Ragi, of the Issa tribe, of whom Burton referred to as Bedouins. It was not long before the caravan was met by the Issa. At this first encounter, the natives were not impressed by the firearms that Burton and his men carried, as they viewed spears as the real weapon of a warrior. In response to the jeers, Burton shot down a pair of big vultures, a single shot each. He then gave out some tobacco to the natives. His show of strength and skill, plus a little generosity, quickly made him friends with the Issa. The Issa, by the way, were preparing for a migration to the west, and Burton couldn't pass up the opportunity to see such a thing. The migration, which began the next day, consisted of 150 warriors plus their families, 200 cows, 7,000 camels, and 11,000 goats and sheep. Ragi, the guide, would recruit three of his relatives to join the expedition west. After departing from the Issa, the caravan would continue on their journey to Harar. There were many villages called Kral along the way. Now, Burton and his band would not just waltz into these small villages. When they arrived, it was custom to announce oneself. 
Elders would then come out to greet the travelers, often bringing water or milk, welcome refreshments after the dust of the road. Burton would then present some minor gifts to the elders, and the caravan would set up camp. Burton would trade with the natives, mostly acquiring food. At times, the caravan would even get a guide to lead them to the next village or through a region. In his book, Burton is vivid in his descriptions of most of the natives he comes across on the journey. As a reminder, Burton just loved to dive into the worlds of the people he encountered. To him, finding out about the natives was an integral part of his adventures. So many explorers often dismiss the natives, calling them savages or noting a few things about them, but not Burton. One example of this was when Burton speaks about the language of the Somali people. He would say, quote, It is strange that a dialect which has no written character should so abound in poetry and eloquence. There are thousands of songs, some local, others general, upon all conceivable subjects, such as camel loading, drawing water, and elephant hunting. End quote. I think this is a great example of Burton's attention to detail about people. He not only tried to learn the language, but he learned about the nuances associated with it. In our stories, you almost never find explorers saying a strange language is poetic and eloquent. Yet Burton can find those things, even in simple nomads. So for this leg of the trek, the issues the expedition faced were many. The region was filled with poisonous snakes and scorpions, forcing Burton and the men to wear black wool wraps around their ankles for protection. Jackals and hyena howled and barked constantly in the distance, and then there were the legendary lions. Burton saw no sign of them, yet. The team always had their pistols and rifles cocked and loaded. And we cannot forget about the natives. They were unpredictable at best. One day, the expedition came across the tracks of approximately 200 horses. These would have been from the Hubber Awal tribe, who were very dangerous. The other major issue on the trek west was the heat. The expedition usually rose in the early morning hours, such as 4 or 5, and then marched until around 10 a.m. But then the temperatures would rise, reaching more than 100 degrees Fahrenheit, or 38 degrees Celsius, forcing the caravan to halt and rest for 4 or 5 hours before continuing. So the expedition would slowly move through and over the Zela Hills and onto the Mara Plains. Progress was slow but steady and they rose in elevation, reaching upwards of 3,000 feet, or 915 meters. Still, it was dry and often insanely hot. On the Mar Plains, there were more villages, and Burton had letters from Haji Sharmake, the governor of Zela, for some of the more prominent chiefs, making introductions and requesting them to aid Burton and his people. Now, one thing that Burton discovered as he moved west and encountered more and more people was that his Mirza Abdullah Prasarna was not as effective as in Arabia or India and the reason was the color of his skin. In Arabia, he could blend in amongst the many thousands of people from all over the world, but here in Africa, he was a light-skinned guy, a Turk or European or whatever. No matter what he did or said, it was obvious that he was an outsider, and while people respected him as a Muslim, they were suspicious of his skin color. To them, it screamed spy. The locals were especially suspicious of the Turks, who the peoples of East Africa had had conflicts with for hundreds of years. Another thing Burton noted as they moved into the highlands were the many ruins. The region had been rumored to have been a great kingdom in the past, and around him, Burton could see evidence of permanent fortifications and buildings, including mosques. On December 10th, Burton would become ill with dysentery. Dysentery is a bacterial infection and is often accompanied by diarrhea, abdominal pains, and fevers. It can be mild in nature, but also deadly. Despite the illness, Burton would insist the caravan push on. By the way, around this time, Burton would sight his first lion. He saw the shadowy figure stalking the caravan, and he would frighten it off with a couple of shots. And so west the team went, going from village to village, trading as they went. At every stop, people told them not to go to Harar, as it was an evil place. 
By Christmas, Burton and his team would be through the deserts and dry plains, the Ethiopian highlands rising to more than 5,000 feet in elevation, or 1,500 meters. He estimated that Harar was less than a week away. However, they would run into some bad news when word reached them that smallpox had broken out in Harar. As a result, on December 29th, Burton would leave some of the baggage and several team members at the village of Walensi. Going forward, it would just be his three companions, Alhomal, Ulad, and End of Time, plus one other servant. The next day, at another village, Burton's health would take a bad turn. His stomach pains were so severe, it was feared that he would die. The locals would try their own remedies on him, but nothing helped. It is said that Burton willed himself to go on, as he couldn't imagine dying in such an inhospitable and isolated place, his fate unknown to the world. His ego would not allow such a thing. And thus, by the new year, Burton's health would improve. However, a new threat appeared in the form of five men from the Habara Wall tribe. These men saw Burton and claimed he was a spy, not a merchant. They told the local ruler, called a Gerard, to turn over Burton to them and they would take him to the Amir of Harar. Burton did not care for the local lord, a man named Aden bin Kashan, but to the man's credit, he refused to do such a thing as Burton, a.k.a. Haji Mirza Abdullah, was his guest. Now, despite this fact, the Gerard refused to escort Burton to Harar and vouch for him to the city's ruler. Burton now had a dilemma before him. If he continued to Harar and showed up as Mirza Abdullah, but had already been denounced as a spy, well, that would be pretty awkward. And thus, Burton made a decision. He would go to Harar and present himself as an Englishman. Everyone, as usual, said he was nuts to do this. But to Burton, this was the only way to accomplish his mission. And thus, on January 2nd, 1855, Burton, still weak from his bout with dysentery, would head towards Harar, taking with him just two of his men, Gulad and Alhamal. The next morning, he would sight Harar. It was located on a hilltop at an elevation of 1,885 meters, or 6,185 feet. Burton was not impressed by the walled city, calling it a pile of stone and a disappointment. An hour later, Burton was at the city gates. He presented himself to the guard and sent a message to the Amir of Harar, requesting an audience. A half hour later, he was led into the city. Burton said the people were cautious and eyed him suspiciously. As he and his men entered, the gates closed ominously behind them. Burton had gotten into the legendary city, but next he would have to get out. The Amir of Harar was Ahmed bin Abu Bakar, a man of about 25, and Burton would eventually be led into his throne room. The Amir was polite and treated Burton well, but it was obvious that he was suspicious of Burton's motives. I mean, Europeans just didn't come to Harar. Burton would present him with a letter written in English. When asked what it said, Burton replied that it was a simple offer of friendship between the people of Harar and England. There was an offer to come to Aden and meet with the British. It was polite, friendly, and diplomatic in tone. The emir smiled at the letter's contents, and Burton said that at that moment he felt confident that he wasn't just going to be hauled out back and executed. The meeting was now over. Burton would next meet with Gerard Mohammed, the wazir or prime minister. He was an old man with a reputation for cunning and evil, but Burton found the man polite and engaging. It helped that the man spoke excellent Arabic. Burton would deliver a gift for the emir, a six-barreled revolver. Of all of this, Burton would write, quote, I was under the roof of a bigoted prince whose least word was death, amongst the people who detest foreigners, the only European who'd ever passed over the inhospitable threshold and the fated instrument of their future downfall, End quote. The latter comment was regarding the legend that once a white Christian passed through the gates of Arar, the city would fall. No matter, Burton would then be brought to talk with others in the court, including some religious elders. He impressed them with his knowledge and practice of Islam and earned their respect. Upon further quizzing from Muhammad, the wazir, Burton would insist that he was only there to offer friendship to Harar. 
England had no interest in buying or conquering the kingdom. He then asked if the emir would like to send a message back to his lords, to which he got no reply. By the way, one story I wanted to share with you about Burton was his dealings with Mohammed, the wazir. Burton noted that the man suffered from a chest problem, likely bronchitis. He would talk to Mohammed and tell him about the medicines and treatments available in Aden, all of which greatly interested the wazir. Burton promised the man that he would send some of these medicines once he returned to Aden. I tell this story because it demonstrates Burton's ability to maximize his odds of success. He knew that Mohammed was probably the most important advisor to the emir, and so he identified a weakness of the man and exploited it. He said, let me go back to Aden and I'll help you out with your health problems. It was a great move as it gives Muhammad a reason, even a small one, to find favor in Burton's request. At this point, Burton could not do much more. He was free to walk about the city, but he could not leave. To try and do so without permission would be suicide. He could only wait for word from the emir. As he waited, Burton did typical Burton stuff. He wandered around and learned about the people and their city. The natives spoke the Harari language, which, Burton surmised, was partly Arabic. He would have loved to have studied it, but circumstances prevented that. In fact, he could not take any notes, as he was watched closely by the Harari. As for the native peoples, Burton estimated the population was about 7,500, with equal numbers of Harari, Somali, and Arabs. Due to a long history of war with the Ethiopian Empire to the north, they disliked outsiders, especially Christians, as Christianity was the official religion of their neighbors to the north. Regarding the city, Burton was not impressed. It covered an area of about a mile by half mile and had many mosques. The city walls, made of granite and sandstone, had five gates and were not in good condition. There were no cannons to defend the city, and the army consisted of no more than a couple of hundred men, with 50 rifles plus spears and swords. Burton would write, quote, 300 Arabs and two galloper guns could take Harar in an hour, end quote. A galloper gun, by the way, is a cannon. Still, the city held sway over a large area, and they could muster many thousands of men if required. The emir was ruthless, eliminating anyone he felt was a threat to his rule. Harar's strength was that it was situated so that it was sort of a middleman for all the goods being transported throughout East Africa. Three times a year, a great caravan would head east to Berbera, bringing slaves, ivory, coffee, tobacco, cotton, and wheat. The big commodity was slaves, and this was another reason the Harari were so wary of the British. They were afraid the British would try and end the slave trade, much of which flowed to the Middle East. Burton would be in Harar for ten days, when he was suddenly summoned to the wazir and handed a letter. It was from the emir, and it was to be brought to Aden. Burton and his men had permission to leave. The wazir would, by the way, remind Burton to send him the medicine he had told him about to help his bronchitis. If Burton ever did so, I don't know. No matter, this was a great victory for Burton. He could have easily been taken out back and executed, and some of the city leaders probably advocated exactly that. But to make a prominent British envoy just disappear might invite some scrutiny and possibly intervention from the British. And thus, the decision was made to exchange pleasantries with the British and let their envoy, Burton, deliver that message. Burton's deft handling of the situation, showing confidence and calm, yet respect, had paid off. On January 15, 1855, he and his men loaded their mules and departed. When the gates of Harar closed behind them, the men would have let out a heavy sigh of relief. Of that moment, Burton would later write, quote, A weight of care and anxiety fell from me like a cloak of lead, end quote. The men would retreat to the village of Wilensi, where they would rest for a week and gather provisions for the return to the coast. Burton would organize his notes of his visit to the city during this time, as well as study the Harari vocabulary. Now, for the return trip, Burton decided on a dangerous route. Instead of returning to Zela, 
he would go straight to the coast to Berbera through the lands of the Habarawal people. Crossing their lands was dangerous, but even more perilous was that it required a five-day march through mostly uncharted desert. No one knew where or if they would be able to find water in that time. If they found any villages, they would have to avoid them as the Habarawal would not take kindly to them being in their lands. For the journey, Burton would hire a guy, a man who was called the Donkey. Anyhow, the caravan would head back east, and those returning to Zayla would say their goodbyes. This would include the cooks, the guide, and several other porters, plus some of the animals and much of the baggage. Now it was just Burton, Gulad, End of Time, Al-Hamal, their new guide, and some mules. Each man would have a water bottle and whatever food he could carry. Burton noted that he had a few limes, five biscuits, sugar, plus some weapons and ammunition. The journey across the desert was an unusually risky decision by Burton. Perhaps he was confident that they could find water, but as noted, they did not know the routes or the location of water sources, and they could not count on any aid from the natives. Also, word of Burton's presence had undoubtedly spread throughout the region. Some people might take it as a challenge to find and kill the man they thought as an infidel and a spy. The crossing of the lands of the Habarawal was a brutal five-day march through the burning sands of Africa. Water, or lack of it, was the primary concern. Burton would write, quote, The demon of thirst rode like care behind us. For 24 hours we did not taste water. The sun parched our brains. The mirage mocked us at every turn. End quote. Death in the desert would happen in roughly 24 to 30 hours if one did not have water. Burton and his men would, at one point, push that to 36 hours. As they were near death, Burton sighted a sand grouse, which he called a kata, out getting water for its young. He called out to his men to follow where it was going. This saved the men as they were led to a spring. Grateful for bringing him and his men to water, Burton would say, quote, I have never since shot a kata, end quote. On the night of January 29th, the men would hear the waves of the ocean in the distance. They were now out of the lands of the Habara Wall, so he and his men decided to approach the next village they encountered to ask for water. Unfortunately, the local villagers were enemies of the Habergirhajis, the same tribe where his three men were from, and no one would help them. However, at least they were not attacked. The next day, the exhausted and thirsty men would reach the coast. From there, they would make a forced march for 40 miles, or 65 kilometers. There, Lieutenant Hearn and Lieutenant Stryan were waiting for Burton. The journey to Harar was now complete. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, explorers. It's Matt. What if you could poke, prod, and explore the mysteries of nature from wherever you are? Outside In is the award-winning podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio that allows you to do just that. From explorations of nature to important conversations about climate change and sustainability, award-winning reporter and host Nate Hedgie covers all kinds of topics related to our world. They cover fascinating topics, like the wild horses of the American West and why they are so divisive, little-known tales from the world of competitive dog sled racing, and the disappearing dunes of coastal Oregon that inspired the desert planet of Arrakis. Through in-depth reporting and narrative storytelling, 
Outside In meets listeners wherever they are to take them on the journey. It's not just for through hikers and conservationists. It is a podcast for anyone who is curious about the natural world. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. The date was February 1st, 1855. Richard Francis Burton had done it. He had dared to go where no European had ever gone and return, the city of Harar. Burton had provided a detailed report of the lands between the coast and the city. If the East India Company was inclined to occupy these lands, they had all sorts of information to help them do so. As for the others in his command, Lieutenants Hearn and Storan had completed their mission, scouting the area around Berbera, collecting information about the city, the caravans, and even doing meteorological observations. As for Captain John Hanning Speak, well, he would return soon, but his mission, to reach the Wadi Nagal, had been a failure. He had been thwarted by shady locals and bad guides, eventually returning to Berbera frustrated and without much to show for his efforts. Now, at this point, Burton could have packed his bags and gone home. The expedition had mostly been a success, but with his team back together and relatively healthy, he hatched another audacious plan. He and his men would organize an expedition to march west through Somaliland to the Nile River and follow it to its source. The source of the Nile had vexed people for thousands of years. To uncover that jewel would make them all famous. So, while animals, men, and baggage were arranged in Berbera, Burton would return to Aden on February 12, 1855. There, he would learn that his mother had passed away a couple of months earlier. By the way, something I have not mentioned about Burton was that he deeply loved and admired his parents. They were decent, honest, and loving people. And despite an unconventional childhood, he appreciated the encouragement and freedoms he had been given growing up. The loss would hurt, but it did not stop the expedition. In Aden, Burton would hand in his reports and inform his superiors of his upcoming plans. Although it's unclear if Burton actually told them the specifics, such as wanting to actually find the source of the Nile. Still, his plan was approved and he headed back to Africa. And thus, in early April, the expedition would gather in Berbera to begin what they hoped would be an epic adventure. There were 42 men, 56 camels, plus horses and mules. They set up camp on April 7th outside of Berbera on a rocky ridge at a harbor under the protection of an East India gunboat, the Mahi. Normal precautions were established, including sentries around the clock, but no one anticipated any troubles. The locals were friendly, and a great annual market was taking place in Berbera, including 3,000 people who had come on a caravan from Harar. This meant lots of people, which would keep away any potential large raiding parties. Burton would stay there for 11 days, waiting for a shipment of instruments and supplies to arrive. The market in the local town would end on April 15th, and the people would clear out. Also, the East India gunboat would have to leave to go take part in blockade duties elsewhere on the coast. Still, Burton and his officers were not concerned about any troubles. On April 18th, a small ship entered the harbor near their camp. The ship had dozens of passengers heading inland, and they asked to accompany the expedition for safety purposes. Burton agreed, saying they would depart the next day. Later that day, sentries would spot three horsemen outside the camp. Burton would go out and speak with the men and come back convinced they meant no harm. And then, between two and three o'clock the next morning, cries of alarm were sounded, and soon fighting broke out. Despite having nearly 40 men in their ranks, all but one of the expedition's contingent would flee, leaving Burton, Speak, Hearn, Stroyan, and a man named Al Bayouz to fend off the nighttime attack by a Somali tribe. The raiders cut loose the animals, creating chaos, and in the darkness, no one really knew who was who. Speak, Hearn, and Stroyan grabbed their revolvers, while Burton had his saber. The Somalis began to throw stones at the British, which were very effective in the dark. When Speak was hit by a rock, he took a step back. Burton told him to stand his ground, as he didn't want the natives to think they were retreating. Now, you would think that saying such a thing was not a big deal, 
But that moment was a very weird one for John Hanning to speak. He would later write about it, saying he was, quote, chagrined by this rebuke of management in fighting, end quote. It was an odd thing to feel insulted in the middle of a melee, but Speak was. In fact, he was so annoyed, he marched straight into the chaos of the camp, firing his gun as he did, and thus getting separated from the others. We will deal with Speak in a minute. Let's stick with Burton. The men would fire their pistols while Burton attacked madly with his sword, which was extremely effective against men using mostly clubs. And then Burton turned and raised his sword to attack the man behind him. And then Burton realized it was Al Bayouz, his ally. Burton hesitated, and at that moment a Somali stepped forward and thrust a javelin at Burton's head. The javelin tip went through one cheek, knocking out four back teeth and ripping Burton's palate. The javelin then came out the other cheek. Despite being impaled by a spear, Burton did not go down. He almost fainted and staggered from the fighting, reaching a little creek that ran to the sea. Here he was found by one of the expedition team members. Burton sent the man to go find the ship in the harbor and see if the captain could come and help. As for the others, Lieutenant Hearn would follow Burton into the fray and end up using the butt of his gun as a club. He would then rush out to the ship in the harbor for safety. Lieutenant Storian was not so lucky. He had been separated in the fighting and had been overwhelmed. Captain Speak, who had plunged into the melee ahead of the others, had been knocked to the ground by a war club and subdued. He was tied to the ground and forced to watch as the Somalis looted the camp. What Speak went through would have been a terrible thing to endure, repeatedly beaten and cut and threatened. And this did not go on for just a few minutes, but at least a couple of hours, as the Somalis looted the camp and gathered up the scattered animals. Finally, one man tried to thrust a spear into Speak's chest, but by that time, Speak had managed to untie himself. He knocked away the spear tip and got into a fight. Speak was smashed in the arm by a club and then stabbed in the hand, back, shoulder, and thigh. Still, he ran off toward the sea. Luckily, the Somalis were not interested in following him. He would stagger for three miles until he was picked up by a search party from the boat. He had 11 wounds. That he had not died was a miracle. By sunrise, the Somalis were gone, and at the looted camp, the body of Lieutenant William Stroyan was found. He had numerous stab wounds and had been beaten to death by the club-wielding Somalis. Burton tried to preserve the corpse, but it was impossible in the heat. Storian would be buried at sea the next day, Lieutenant Hearn performing the burial service. And so, that ended the Somaliland expedition. What had been a success had ended in disaster. This would, as you can imagine, dim the accomplishments of reaching Harar. And we should note that the Crimean War was now in full swing, and the deeds of explorers were overshadowed by the conflict. Now, a few notes about all of this. First, Burton would return to England and recover from his wounds and begin work on a book about his experiences, which would be titled First Footsteps in East Africa, which would be published in 1856. And I want to note that the book is packed with a ton of information. What I talked about in this episode is only a fraction of what Burton included. And if you want to read Burton's narrative, I put a link to it on our site, where you can read it online for free. Second, regarding the book, Burton would include Speak's journal notes of his adventures, but would rewrite them. This would infuriate Speak, and he would never forgive Burton for what he felt was an insult. Third, Burton would soon be looking for a position in the Crimea, where war was now raging. We will touch on this next time. Fourth, there would be an inquiry into the melee at Berbera, and Burton would be exonerated for his actions. But none of it helped his career. Many felt that he had not been diligent enough in protecting the camp, but to be honest, those were armchair quarterbacks. What had happened was due to the fact that the raiders had too many men, upwards of 200, and the native guards had fled without a fight. The odds that the British faced were just too great, and it's a miracle that three of them had survived. If anything, you can criticize Burton for waiting too long to depart the region, his camp just sitting there for days and days, allowing others to scrutinize and plan an attack. In the end, he and his officers had fought bravely and with honor. 
The fifth thing I want to mention is regarding John Hanning's speak. The man had endured a terrible experience and had survived. However, as I noted earlier, Speak was an odd guy. He was described as cold and calculating, the kind of person who never forgets a slight. Later, he would blame Burton for the defeat on the beach, saying that he should have hired more of the locals for protection. Add this to Burton's rewriting of his journals, plus the supposed slight surrounding his actions in the fight, and you have a guy building up a lot of resentment. In his biography on Burton, Byron Farwell would say this of the man, quote, Speak was sensitive to slights and he held secret grudges. He kept his antagonism and his unfavorable opinions of his chief to himself until he was ready to use them as ammunition for his revenge. Unfortunately for Burton, he knew nothing of these traits in his subordinate until it was too late. End quote. To be fair to speak, I want to note that the descriptions of the guy that I have read are mostly in books focused on Burton, so there might be some bias in play, but I really can't find anyone that portrays Speak in a more sympathetic light. No one doubts the man's courage or skill, but his peevishness and holding of grudges was not an attractive quality. The key thing regarding Speak is that no one, including Burton, realized how ambitious and calculating the guy really was. If Burton had known, it's unlikely he would have worked with him in the future. So that is it for notes for today's episode. Next, I want to do a final wrap-up on the expedition, which I think is pretty simple. Burton had accomplished his main tasks. He had done something no one had ever done, all the while showing immense courage and smarts. And in the process, he had provided the British with an inside look at the region and shattered any myth about Harar as some great city, not unlike what happened with Timbuktu in West Africa. In his report, Burton would say that capturing Harar was unnecessary. Instead, he recommended setting up a base in Berbera, which already controlled much of the trade that came from the interior. As for the battle with the Somali tribesmen outside of Berbera, that was a crushing way to end the expedition. One of Burton's men had died, and the endeavor was over before it even began. Unfortunately, that incident was the main thing that dominated news of the expedition. Still, it would not dim Burton's hopes for one day searching for the source of the Nile. But that will be for next time. And that, my friends, brings us to the end of today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. Please come back next time for part four in our series on Richard Francis Burton when our mustachioed Englishman returns to Africa. Thank you for listening. I wish you all good health and happiness. I will finish up by letting you know that the Explorers podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other great podcasts, such as the Daily Meditation Podcast and the Investing for Beginners Podcast. That's at airwavemedia.com.